0: We're talking about the the serial killer. New South Wales police don't have a great deal of experience investigating serial killings.
1: I can't picture him being a murderer, you know. I can't picture him doing that to those kids, really. I want him to go to jail
0: for justice. And I still want to fight for justice. Justice. Justice.
1: All we want is justice. Get us into court.
0: And this is unique. It hasn't happened in New South Wales before. As far as I know, it hasn't happened in Australia. I am absolutely gobsmacked by the amount of people that have never heard of it or no understanding of it.
2: This is Bowerville, a podcast about innocence and guilt. Brought to you by the Australian newspaper. I'm Dan Box.
1: I went to the verdict on the trial and not knowing anything about it, but just thinking that we had him. And um, that was shocking. The not guilty. I'll never forget it. It was devastating.
2: This is Leonie Derue. She's talking about the trial of Jay Hart for the murder of sixteen-year-old Clinton Speedy Derue in February nineteen ninety-four. Back then, Leonie had just begun a relationship with Clinton's brother, Marbuck.
1: We arrived and we went in. When we went into court, when the jury came back, um. Thomas sat actually behind where Hart was going to be
2: sitting. Thomas being Clinton's dad.
1: dad, um, Not on purpose, but they wanted to move him. And I didn't know what was going on. And and so they just asked me to sit there, but they moved Thomas. And then, you know, we're just thinking it's going to be guilty and it wasn't. And um, Thomas's mother collapsed, I think. The media went up to June, Tom um, Clinton's mum, and just shoved the camera in her face and said something like, "Will you ever get over this?" or, you know. And then Troy, who's Clinton's youngest brother, was sixteen, and they ended up interviewing him. He's so traumatized; he doesn't really remember that he was sixteen.
2: Traumatized from the
1: from just the whole the whole you know what was happening, cameras being shoved in your face, and Nan collapsing, and people crying, and. And they, we went into a little room off Grafton Courthouse and there were high windows. And um, the media actually climbed up to try and get vision of people in, in the room. Um, that's, my memory of it was pretty, it was just like a circus, it was crazy.
2: So what had happened? Why was Jay on trial for killing Clinton? And why was there no trial over the murders of Colleen Walker and Evelyn Greenup? After all, all three children disappeared from the same town, Boweryville, over the same five months. Well, Colleen's body was never found, so there was no trial. But four-year-old Evelyn, the police did actually charge Jay with her murder too. Only the judge refused to hold the trials together, or to let evidence about how similar the killings were be heard in court. That decision had a huge impact, and when I look at what happened next, at what's been happening over the 25 years since, I keep coming back to this beginning. The judge, Jeremy Badgery Parker, died in 2002, so we can't ask him to explain it.
0: So I found a lawyer instead. The law as it stood at the time was evidence that's similar but doesn't get that high, doesn't prove it's one killer, is inadmissible, doesn't go into court. This is Craig Longman, a senior researcher with the Jumbunna
2: Indigenous House of Learning at University of Technology, Sydney, and he's worked closely with the children's families and spent years studying the case. When I went to meet Craig, I thought I had a pretty good handle on the legal technicalities involved. But within about 10 minutes, I felt like a rabbit in the headlights. This stuff is complicated. Which means Craig and I had a lot of exchanges like this. So he said that evidence that shows the two crimes are similar, because it shows the two crimes are similar, is a reason not to actually include it in the
0: trials. No, so what he said was, the only time that evidence is admissible is if it shows a striking similarity, such a striking similarity or underlying unity, that there is no reasonable hypothesis consistent with innocent. So if you can come up with a hypothesis that says the defendant didn't do it, then it's not admissible, which means it doesn't even get in front of the jury. And that's what he ruled here.
2: Eventually, I started to get my head around it. And what I think the judge was saying is, look, there is evidence to say these killings are similar, but not to say absolutely 100% they were definitely committed by the same person. So it's not fair on the accused killer, that's Jay, for the jury to hear evidence about Evelyn's death at the same time as it's looking at Clinton's death. To stop that happening, the judge says, we'll run a trial where we pretend that Clinton was the only murdered child in Barrowville, and that the other children's deaths didn't take place at all.
0: And so I think um, what was interesting, I mean, you know, it must be said that his honour, when he made this determination, had very little evidence in front of him compared with the evidence that was later obtained in the reinvestigation. So there's
2: two problems with the evidence. One
0: is that there was less of it
2: when this Mm. this judge was looking at the trial. And the other problem is of the evidence that he had available to him, he said, a lot of this I'm not going to admit because
0: you're trying to link two crimes that I don't think you can link. Well, and there's, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right, but there's a bigger problem which is these, these murders are starkly similar only when you look at all three killings and the circumstances that surround them. Now what flowed from his honour's judgment is, we're just going to run Clinton's trial. So all of a sudden, a lot of the evidence around the general circumstances, behaviour on the, on the mission, drinking, dro- um, allegations of spiking drinks, and in particular, allegations of a motivation or a motive that's consistent across all three killings disappear. You're forced into a situation where you're saying to a jury, look, here's a potential motivation in relation to this one killing. And a jury's probably sitting there thinking, well, but why should I believe that in this case? There's no other killings. There's no other bodies out there.
2: The effect of that was that the jury heard a lot less evidence than the police wanted them to hear. According to the cops and to Craig, the case was weaker as a result. Clinton's father, Thomas, gave evidence at the trial.
3: When they said not guilty, all everything just went to pieces. All of my family was just shell-shocked. We just couldn't believe it because we, we were expecting him to be jailed there and then. But that didn't happen, to so. It still hasn't happened. How do you feel now? Still got it because of nothing being done. The judge's
2: decision to hold the trial separately also meant there was less evidence suggesting Jay played a role in Evelyn's killing, because the police now couldn't use anything that linked Jay to Clinton's death. As a result, the prosecutors decided not to go ahead with the trial over Evelyn's murder. Years later, though, the police re-investigated the killings and again charged Jay Hart over her death. This time, Evelyn's mum, Rebecca Stadams, spent two days in the witness box giving evidence.
1: Oh, we thought we, you know, we thought that we
2: would have got him. But that was just another loss, you know. And when the decision, when the jury made its decision that Jay was innocent, how did you feel?
0: We
1: all was angry. Gosh. Everyone was just crying. And you know what? I told them, look, we're doing this for Evelyn, you know? Don't make a big scene. We all just get up and walk out. Because I think, because I know there was riot, riot police in there everywhere, waiting to see if we would start playing up, but.
2: There was riot police at the court?
1: Yeah. They had the um, right places and that, in case we would have played
2: up, you know. Inside the court or...? Inside and outside, yeah. Evelyn's grandmother, Patricia Stadams, was also there in court.
1: Yeah, we'd never been through those scenes before like that. It was a big experience for all of us.
2: Did anyone explain it and tell you what to do?
1: As Sort of, you know, we see it on TV and that, but that that was way worse.
2: Did uh, did you understand what was going on in court?
1: Sort of, yeah.
2: But not completely. Not completely. And did you feel that the lawyers in the court and the judge <coughs> tried to understand you? I
1: know. I don't think so, because of course, the way they were a uh, attitude
2: what kind of attitude?
1: sort of a sarcastic amount
2: sarcastic what were they saying?
1: Uh, I, they didn't believe what we were saying you know I just couldn't handle it no more I collapsed after I came out of court
2: you collapsed? Mm. so you gave evidence and then walked out and.
1: yeah just distress yeah
4: I think they were overwhelmed by the whole court process.
2: This is Jason Evers. He's one of the detectives who charged Jay over Evelyn's death.
4: I, I, I felt, and we looked at some different angles of it, but I think, not that you can scoodle a witness up, but I think one of the jury should have been informed about their habit to be non-verbal and to try and close down communication when they, and that their non-verbal communication is to look down um, it's not a sign of guilt or they don't know anything. It's just a, it's a natural way for them to uh, communicate. We felt that that wasn't really approached, and it wasn't, and that made it, I think, an unfair trial to a certain extent.
2: You'd say it was an unfair
3: trial.
4: Well, for that, for, that, for those witnesses, yeah, to not take in their. Their traditional communication skills and what what is well known and 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 recorded, not to take that on board within a court and adapt, because you had an indigenous society trying to work into a into a I guess a you know a Caucasian a, aristoro, a aristocratic type court system. It doesn't work.
2: Do you feel they've Extremely been let down.
4: To, Oh, by the system, yeah, for sure. Do you feel As you've I've been, been stated, let down? Yeah, well, it had a lasting effect on me, hence I'm medically retired.
2: So, what, the effect of this investigation?
4: Yeah, it was definitely part of my reasons for medically retiring.
2: Because of the stress of dealing with it?
4: Yeah, and... Yeah, and the, and the dealing with the victims, the reports we built, and, you know, we were taken into their society in the end, and basically, the night of the trial ended, I got a phone call from a mate, a detective made in Balner I got no other call, no anything. Just pack your stuff up. I drive the exhibits back in the a five-a-car to Maxwell and continue to Balner.
2: And so that was it? The trial ended and you were moved it. on? Mm.
4: See you later. Your TA's up. Head home.
2: Jason says the courts need to look at the case again because, he says, it would be a chance to put a serial killer behind bars. That is pretty powerful language, but what does it actually mean? Well, let's look at how similar these killings are. Firstly, Colleen, Clinton and Evelyn were all children. The first two were 16 and Evelyn was four. All three children were Aboriginal. All three disappeared over five months between 1990 and 1991. All three were staying on the same street in Barrowville when they disappeared. All three were also last seen on the nights of parties in the town. Jay Hart was seen at the scene of each. Evelyn and Clinton's bodies were found dumped beside the same dirt road, and Colleen's clothes were fished out of a river near where that road goes over a bridge. Evelyn and Clinton had both suffered blows to the head. The police also thought there might be a sexual motive. Colleen was a teenage girl, and Evelyn and Clinton were potentially witnesses to sexual assaults. Does that sound like a serial killer's work to you? I spoke to Jenny Cartwright, an academic who led a study of serial killers for the Australian Institute of Criminology. Firstly, I asked, how many killings makes a serial killer?
1: Um, The FBI definition, um, they actually consider two or more separate homicide events which occur over a period of time. That could be hours, days, weeks or even years. But there has to be what they term as an essential cooling off period between the
0: actual homicides
2: themselves. I had Jenny's research in front of me while we were talking, and what struck me was this. She'd gone through the scientific literature on serial killers and found the same few things crop up again and again. Serial killers are often found to have acted out of either sexual or psychological gratification. The killings are often interracial, so committed by, say, white people on black victims. Serial killers usually use strangulation or beating. They're likely to find their victims all within the same area, usually near where the killer lives themselves. And they're likely to dispose of the victims' bodies in remote locations. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, yep, yep, yep.
1: And actually... Uh, with serial killers, they have a tendency to select their victims based on on um, commonalities.
2: So they select a group, or they select a type of victim, so women or old people or children.
4: Exactly,
2: yeah. So, yes, this does look like the work of a serial killer. So, surely you'd really, and I mean really, want to make sure whoever did it was in jail. Jay Hart, of course, was found not guilty of murdering Evelyn as well. According to those who saw him, he left the courtroom smiling. Since then, only one court has ever heard the evidence about all three killings at the same time. In 2004, the New South Wales state coroner John Abernethy held an inquest into the deaths of Evelyn and Colleen. It was not his job to find out who killed them, but he did find that both had been murdered and said, quote, I'm of the view that the Director of Public Prosecutions should look closely at the three cases in making a decision as to proceed. So maybe it's simple. Can Jay Hart be put on trial for all three murders at the same time? As I said earlier, it's kind of a domino effect. This is Craig Longman again. He says it's right here that we find ourselves smacking back into that first judge's decision not to hold the trials together right
0: at the start. And that finding of not guilty meant, therefore, that you couldn't rerun that trial, Clinton's death, in any subsequent trials. Because you're not allowed to try someone, send them to court for the same offence twice. That's right. And the, the principles of, that underlie double jeopardy are, one of them is you know, that the state shouldn't have the right to keep retrying people. But the, the one that's particularly relevant here is you can't go behind a jury's verdict. So if a jury says, we've heard this trial, and we find this individual not guilty, you can't then run a trial that invites the jury to reason that this person actually did that first crime, and so they probably did this. And you should convict them of this second one, even if they've got a not guilty in the first.
2: It's a real knot. It's a a real knot, and it was tied in this decision to hold the trial separately. Can I? go back and pick up on some of the things you said. Hmm. Firstly, the law's changed in terms of hearing evidence about the similarity between different murders. On the basis of what you know of the law now, if they'd made that application to try Jay for killing both Clinton and Evelyn together
0: now, do you think it would be heard together? If they made the application on the basis of the evidence they have now, yes, I think it would be heard together.
2: After the inquest, the police did ask the Director of Public Prosecutions, Nicholas Cowdrey, to refer the cases to the appeal court. You see, an appeal court is a circuit breaker. It can overturn another court's verdict and order the whole matter be tried again. Mr Cowdrey, however, declined to do so, saying the evidence did not support it. I asked him if we could speak about this decision, but he turned me down, saying he's since retired does not have access to his files and, quote, My memory is not such that I could usefully contribute to a discussion now about the grounds for the decision and the process by which it was made. Which is fair enough, I think. But it was devastating for the families. Leonie Derue, who married Clinton's brother, told me the families then tried the state politicians, who also have the power to send cases to the appeal court.
1: Yeah, I've written so many letters. And not just me, but, you know, we've written heaps, heaps and heaps. Dozens of letters? Oh, I've sent an email to every single member in Parliament in the Legislative Assembly more than, probably more than three occasions, with very few responses.
2: Over the years, they've written to several New South Wales Attorneys General, asking them to send the cases back to court. The first, John Hatzistergoss, said he was not satisfied there was a reasonable prospect of a conviction. I asked to speak to him and in an email I was told he, quote, politely declines your interview request. The second Attorney General, Greg Smith, wrote to the family saying he also would not send the cases to the appeals court because he believed the prospects of success were poor. I called Mr Smith's offices without response. When I tried again, a week or two later, his receptionist told me, I don't think he plans to call you back. That I do mind. And my bigger concern here is that surely the appeals court, the judges, should be able to decide whether or not they will consider the Bowerville murders. Why is it up to the politicians to decide what goes before the court? For the families, this whole process has taken years.
3: This is Clinton's father, Thomas, again. And it's getting away now, that we're like we're going downhill sort of thing. Keep getting there and something gets done and then we get knocked back again. And that has been like that you know, for the last 10 or 12 years or more now. You go uphill and then you get knocked back down again. Do you feel that down? Yeah. Yep. People have let you down? Yeah. Why do you think the that's government happened? really? I just maybe if the government would they would come out here and have a look. They send some delegates out, but we tried to get the attorney general to come out, and everyone's declined the offer. Why do you think they declined it? I don't know. I would, I, they don't even give you a reason. They just say they've got something else on at the time, or. And then what about
2: Colleen's family? They've never even had a trial because the police thought that without a body there wasn't enough evidence to go to court. The only way anyone will ever face trial over her murder is if it's over the killing of all three children at the same time. That complete lack of justice has had a huge impact on them.
1: Well, myself personally, I've given up on the the, part of the politicians.
2: This is Muriel Craig, Colleen's mother.
1: Look, believe me, I mean, sometimes I think, about, you know, I, th- I do think about, you know, killing myself, and but then I realise I can't because, of, you know, I'd be all right, but I know the people I leave behind wouldn't be.
2: The current Attorney General is Gabrielle Upton. I've asked her office several times for an interview without any luck. Then she sent me a written statement saying, quote, It is now a matter for the Families and New South Wales Police Force whether to make an application for a retrial in the Court of Criminal Appeal. You see, something's changed. In 2014, there was a parliamentary inquiry into the Bowerville murders, which insisted that any new application for a retrial be assessed by someone independent of the state government. Miss Upton said she supported that recommendation, In the last sentence of her email to me, the Attorney General says, To date, no further application for retrial has been received. Now to me, that sounds like an invitation to apply again. And in just the last few days, something else has changed. Since we started publishing these podcasts, the State Premier, Mike Baird, has come out publicly saying that any retrial application will go before an independent judge. The New South Wales Police Commissioner, Andrew Scipioni has also said publicly that he supports the work of the detectives reinvestigating Jay's alleged links to the murders, and that he is now making arrangements to meet the Bowerville Children's Families himself. And right now, as I'm saying this, the police and lawyers representing those families are drawing up an 18-volume submission of all the evidence, calling for a retrial of Jay Hart. This is big. Suddenly, maybe, the case could be heading back to court. Which has got to make you ask the question, what if Jay is not guilty? What if he didn't have anything to do with these murders at all? Next time on Bowerville.
3: Yeah, right. Like, as far as we're concerned, he had nothing to do with it, and
2: let's see. you ever asked Jay about it? Like, just, nah. you know, like
3: you and me are talking nah. about
2: said, Nah, No. Why nah. not? Well, as far as I
3: know,
2: well, he didn't do it. Bowerville is a podcast brought to you by The Australian. It was produced and edited by Eric George. Original music by Riley McCulloch and Marlo Fitzpatrick. Additional music by Chris Zabriskie, Rui, Graham Bowl, and Andy G. Cohen. You can find all the episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud and on iTunes, where you can also subscribe to keep track of future episodes. To read more about the Bowerville murders, head to theaustralian.com.au forward slash I'm Dan Box.